We turn to God's word as we find that in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Writing to the first century Christians who had been converted, of course, some from the Jewish faith and others from paganism. And as they are identified with Christ, they begin to count a cost and suffer persecution, and he informs them it's only going to get worse and more severe in the time to come. First Peter chapter 4, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they, speaking especially of their relatives from whose lifestyle they were converted, They think it strange that ye run not yet with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, that is, in accordance with God's word. If any man minister, that it will, will serve, then Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God on this behalf. And now comes our text. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator.
passage, of course, must be seen in its context. And we really need not go any further back than verses 15 and 16. Notice 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer and then, or even as a busybody in other men's matters. That's interesting, you know, that being a busybody in other men's matters has to do with the tongue and the use of the tongue and the pen in demeaning and belittling and even, I would say, sometimes abusive, vicious ways. There's a lot of that going around these days, you know. And it's not Christianity. The apostle puts that kind of talk about others and writing about others with that kind of spirit in the category of being a murderer, a thief, and an evildoer. Let us pay heed. Whatever others may say about self and how they say it, let us not stoop to respond with the same demeanor and in the same manner. And then, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. And that phrase reminds me of something that's found in the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 12, question and answer 32. Why art thou called a Christian? And you can ask that question, of course, from two points of view. From what we might call the doctrinal point of view, why is that an appropriate title to apply to sinners, though those sinners be believers, that we should take upon our, ourselves the very title of the Lord and Savior, who is the Christ, the Messiah? It's almost like we're being called Messiahs, you know, not just Christians, Messiahs. That's the Hebrew word. How can that be proper? We're no saviors. But the Catechism reminds us that the word itself in Hebrew and in Greek, Messiah and Christos, means anointed. Christ is the anointed one to a certain task to represent God in this world. Henry Catechism reminds believers, and you also have the anointing, the anointing of Christ, his spirit, prophet, priest, and kings, for a task to represent him in this world. So it's a proper title to give to sinful believers however exalted that title may be. Proper. But you can also ask the question from this point of view, can't you? As I will. And why, pray tell, are you and you called a Christian? Do men know you as Christians in society, in this community? Why is that? Because you've been baptized? Because you are a member of a church of some reputation? And when you die, you expect some clergyman to say some nice words over your head? Those kinds of Christians, you know, are a dime a dozen these days. I've been baptized. 
I'm a member of a church. I, I show up every now and then too, you know, and leave my collections behind. And I expect some clergyman to say some good words over me when I die. I trust, beloved, you are known for being Christians for more reasons than that. You and I are known for being Christians because we are walking worthy of the name. And let's not quibble over that name, that word worthy. It's a word that's found in scriptures, you know, in Ephesians chapter 4, of walking worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, having nothing to do with earning or meriting, but fitting and in harmony with the name by which you are called. As a Christian, with deeds of charity, it says here, as we have read in the context, and in godliness and in holiness. Those people live as Christians. The world knows. The world knows what's expected of Christianity in the behavior of those who want to be known as Christians. And it's distinctive, it ought to be, from that of the world. That ties in with our text. And the apostle is saying, and if you live that way, expect to be marked as such and then bear the reproach of Christ. He who will be identified with Christ and lives that way is going to be the object of reproach. And it may even be of a fiery sort that's not simply reproach and mocking, but it actually end up being assaults. Not only threats, but imprisonments. And one's very life may be at stake in the end. That's what happened to first century Christians, beloved. Dispossessed of all they had. And then facing some of them death itself. Fiery trials. Are you and I ready to count that cost for Christ's sake? And the apostle is saying to his readers, and if you are not, then you are not worthy of the name. And if you are unwilling to suffer for the name of Christ and be identified with him, well then I say to you who have joined the church, you better ask yourself where you're going to appear in the end. Right now he's saying, Outwardly, you've obeyed the gospel. You've entered the church for who knows what reason. But if you are not willing to count the cost in the end, you better consider what your end will be. If the righteous be scarcely saved, where do you think the ungodly and the sinner who has turned his back on the gospel is going to appear in the end? Consider that, he says, to those who are in the church. And that's what we have to hear ourselves this evening to the profit of our souls and the strengthening of our faith, this apostolic word. So the text under the theme, the righteous scarcely saved by testing means in a humbling, wonderful manner and the calling necessarily implied. Basically, the first point is verse 17, the second point is verse 18, and the third point is verse 19, verse by verse, is how it works itself out. 
What the apostle is doing in this section of the epistle and what he is dealing with is explaining how Christ Jesus accomplishes the salvation of his people. And by the word accomplishes, I don't mean how he secures the salvation of his people. He has secured it by his death, and he has sealed it by his resurrection. And by accomplishing, I don't even mean how he begins that work of salvation, calling one out of darkness into light, raising the dead to spiritual life. He does that, of course, by this irresistible power, which has no regard for the will of man, but simply works inwardly like the wind and breathes life, and then men's wills are set free and are quickened. So not accomplished is it from the point of view of this irresistible grace that first saves a man for whom he has secured salvation, but accomplishes in the sense of working out the salvation of a person so that that that, that man is saved comes to light. And reveals itself and demonstrates indeed that a man has been saved. How does he accomplish that? And the apostle is explaining here part of how he accomplishes that. He does that, of course, by the preaching of the word and instruction, but he also does that by the means of the judgments that he refers to here. That's the point. Come to that in just a bit more clarity in just a moment. You will... Notice, beloved, that the apostle ties in this accomplishing of salvation with these judgments. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The word judgment here does not refer to the final judgment. As if the apostle is saying when Christ enters into final judgment with the whole of humanity. First will be the believers, those who are righteous in Christ. They will be judged first, and then after that will come the ungodly and the unbeliever. That's not what he has in mind, the final judgment here. In fact, he doesn't even have in mind Christ judging by assessing the lives of men in this life, so that first he assesses the, the life of believers, and those who are God's children in the church, and then he assesses the life of the ungodly and the unbeliever. Now, what he's referring to here are what we know as catastrophes and even sometimes tragedies, judgments that have come upon creation and mankind due to sin, things that in the end work death, physical death, floods and famines and fires and fevers, that is, diseases and plagues and war and conflict and earthquakes and tsunamis and what we might even call automobile accidents, things that work death, those kinds of judgments that are presently in creation visited upon mankind due to sin. And he says these judgments must begin at the house of God. And before we explain that phrase must begin, he refers here to the house of God. And by this reference to the house of God, he's referring to the church institute. 
Understand, beloved, that when judgments fall, they don't discriminate between believer and unbeliever, between the godly and the ungodly. So that when judgments fall, it's just the ungodly who die of these judgments, of disease and, and, of, and of famine and floods and fires and who knows what other instruments of, of death. As if it's only the ungodly who ever contract cancer, you know, or COVID. We know that, very rightly, that is not true. These judgments don't discriminate. They fall upon the righteous as well as the unrighteous, upon the godly as well as the ungodly. And then he mentions in that context, they must begin at the house of God. The house of God, beloved, refers to the church institute. That which has the name of God and in which gospel preaching can be found to varying degrees of purity and that God uses to gather his church in those churches in which a remnant of the elect can be found, and that may vary, of course, from denomination to denomination, a rather broad spectrum in these days of the house of God. But whatever, it's called the house of God because his name is found there, and in these institutions are even found some of his people that he is willing to save in those institutions, those church institutes, you see, the house of God. Just as in the Old Testament, Israel is called the house of God because it bore the name of God, even though not all Israel was saved. So he refers here to the church institute, and judgments must begin at the church institute. Remember, as we have implied, that the church institute is mixed seed. Not only the elect are found there, the carnal are found there as well. And when the apostle writes this epistle in the Christian church, there weren't only those who had a true faith to be found. There were also those who were members for a time, like Demas, who was even getting ready, you know, for seminary following Paul. And Paul speaks highly of Demas in the book of the Colossians. And then when it comes to a letter to Timothy, he says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He made a temporary confession of faith and was counted with Christianity. But he wasn't ready to count the cost when all was said. And, done, and he departed from the faith, from a confession of faith. That's what the apostle here has in mind, the church from that point of view. And he speaks of these judgments beginning at the house of God. There were in the church, of course, these early new converts. And that the judgments fell upon them indiscriminately righteous with unrighteous and the godly with the ungodly was something that puzzled them, baffled them, and in the end even troubled them. Because when they were pagans, when these judgments fell, they called them the judgments of the gods. They knew deep down this, this was an expression of wrath. And they wanted not simply to speak of the one true God, but of gods. And that's why in many pagan Societies, as soon as these judgments fell and there's a great earthquake and death through the cities and the nations and so on, they would try to placate the gods by sacrificing this and sacrificing that. They knew it was wrath, an expression of wrath and judgment upon them. And how somehow do we escape? We have to placate the gods. Now you have these New Testament Christians, early Christians, delivered from that kind of superstition. They have become Christians. They confess the one true God and Christ whom he has sent. 
And lo and behold, the judgments fall, and they still die. It wasn't simply as unbelievers that they had little children that died of disease. Now they're believers, and they have little children, and some of them died. And there were judgments that fell. If there's an earthquake in the city, it wasn't just the ungodly who might be crushed to death. Some of the godly also could be crushed to death. Why aren't they being spared? Does their faith count for nothing? Is God still angry with them? Is, still, is this still an element of wrath against them, though they confess his name? Has God forgotten to be kind? And the apostle has to explain to them that what is happening to them by means of these judgments of God's hand that continue to fall indiscriminately are not now to them as believers expressions of wrath. But they have now for them as believers a different purpose. And the purpose has to do in the end with salvation. Has to do with the gathering of the church the spread of the gospel, and the preservation of his own in the world to bear witness to the truth. That's what that word must begin refers to. That word must begin doesn't mean it will start there, as though the final judgment will start with the godly, or that even these judgments that fall, first fall on the godly and then on the ungodly. The Greek, here it's important to know some Greek. That Greek makes plain that when the apostle says must begin, he's talking about it from the point of view of its primary purpose and, if you will, motivation in God's heart. And when God sends the judgments upon the world, though indeed they are testimonies of wrath against the ungodly, even then he has primarily in mind his church and the gathering of his church, and the preservation of his people, and the witness of the gospel being spread throughout all the world. So with you in mind, first of all, and whether you can see it or not, for your good, that is the salvation of yourself and even in generations to come. That's the statement. Now I want to demonstrate that, beloved, from Scripture. And I want to turn your attention to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, and by the way, I should have added this as well. Spoke of these judgments. And then the believer said, not only do we suffer the consequence of these judgments that fall, we're even being persecuted. So that we are even as Christians now suffering more than when we weren't Christians. When we weren't Christians, we suffered judgments and death. Now that we are Christians, not only do we suffer those deaths, now we're the object of animosity and even of assaults. And our suffering has increased. We had it easier when we weren't Christians. Maybe we ought to revert to being non-Christians and suffer less. See, being Christians has added to our sufferings. It hasn't diminished them. We have the judgments of God on creation and 
Now, persecution and suffering for Christ's sake as well. Why would any man in his right mind want to be a Christian if it just means adding to your suffering? And the apostle is answering that from this perspective. That these judgments serve salvation, the salvation of God's church and the gathering of the church and the preservation of the church and its witness as well. Revelation chapter 6. This comes, if you recall, just after one has ascended up on high and the question has been asked, who can open the book, the seven-sealed book? Who is worthy to open the seven-sealed book? And the seven-sealed book, of course, represents the whole of New Testament history and no one could be found to open that seven-sealed book until one appeared who is called the Lion of Judah's tribe, except he appears as a lamb, because, of course, that represents Christ on the basis of his work on the cross. As the lamb, he is the Lion of Judah's tribe, and he has the right, he is worthy to open the book to govern the whole of New Testament history as Lord and as Savior, you'll see. And so, now chapter 6. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, the first seal. I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, Come and see, and I came, and I saw a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That white horse, as you must know, represents nothing less than the gospel. Christ sending forth the gospel, conquering and to conquer. Why? Is there New Testament history, beloved? Why didn't Christ simply have ascended up on high, cast Satan out of heaven, and simply called history to an end and taken the saints to glory? Because there was a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who were elect from all eternity, bought by the blood, who had to hear the call of the gospel and to be saved. And you and, you and myself, standing and sitting here this evening, are the results, the fruit of that. He had our salvation in mind, us and ours. And so he would not and he could not call a halt to history at that point because there were many bought by the blood, elect from all eternity, who had yet to be saved, heard the gospel. The whole purpose of New Testament history. The white horse running through the whole of New Testament history with the gospel, spread of the gospel and the saving of those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. But now, he opens the second seal, and a second beast, another horse, red, power given him, that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. There was given him a great sword, representing war. See, the second horse represents war, which is throughout the whole of New Testament history. And the third seal, the third beast, saying, Behold, a black horse. And the one sat on him, had a pair of balances in his hands, and there's wealth and there's poverty and there's social tensions because of inequity in the distribution of wealth and, 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 and all the rest. And then the fourth seal and the fourth beast, and he's the pale horse, and on him that sat death and hell. Literally the grave follows after him, representing fearful plagues and diseases and the death that comes following after. But the point is this, beloved. Those three horses, red, black, and pale, and what they represent serve the white horse and the spread of the gospel. 
That's the point, you see. The judgments. They represent the judgments spoken of here by Peter. But they're in the service of the gospel, in the service of the gathering of Christ's church as a witness to his name. Wasn't that the purpose of persecution at the very beginning of the New Testament? They gathered, if you recall, around Jerusalem. And then the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, went after those who had professed Christ's name and had left Judaism. And because of the persecution, there was a scattering. And what did they do? They took with them the gospel. And you end up having a gathering of saints in Damascus. And you have the beginning of a church in Antioch of Syria where men were first called Christians and became, as you know, the basis, the base home base for the sending forth of, of Paul, of Paul with Barnabas and then Paul with Silas, the beginning of missions, but as the fruit of persecution. How many times haven't you heard the blood of the saints is in the end the spread of the gospel? That is, the, love, the blood of the saints is the life of the, of the church and serves the gathering of the church and the spread of the, of the witness. But that's true also of war. It's interesting, you know, that Peter speaks of this fiery trials in Rome, certainly spurred on by ungodly Judaism, sees Christians as the enemy of, of Rome, and a great persecution breaks out against the early New Testament Christians, as you know your history. But Rome was not able to extinguish the Christian faith and the Christian church. And in large measure, beloved, if you know your history, it's because Rome's attention was diverted because there were barbarians on the north. Some of our ancestors and their barbarian pagan unbelief were threatening the borders and the very existence of Rome with the civilization. And so Rome's attention was also diverted to put towards the protection of its, of its northern border, lest it be overrun by the barbarians, and it served the preservation of the Christian church so that it did not simply become the lone object of the eye of the evil one and the evil in his heart. And I'll give you one other instance from history as it ties in with what we know as the, as the Reformation. We know our Reformation history, we know the names of Luther and Kelvin and the, the great doctrines of, 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 of the faith and of scripture infallibility inspired over against Rome and her errors, that doctrinal controversy and the beginning of Protestantism under the, the, the work of God using Luther and Calvin and so on. But we, what we don't know and we aren't so aware of is that Protestantism was spared being extinguished by the Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholic princes in large measure because there was war on her eastern border as the Turks were advancing during the 1500s and the early 1600s. And the simple fact is that the Roman Catholic princes could not afford simply to put all their soldiers against the Protestant princes and their, and their churches and extinguish it, and neither did they really want to because they knew for us to withstand the Turks coming in from the east, we need the help of the soldiers who are now Protestant and are the Protestant princes. So on the one hand, they couldn't use all their force simply to go after the Protestant princes and, and the Protestant churches. And they even needed them to some extent if they were going to stand the pressure from the East lest they lose the whole of Western civilization, not even the Roman Catholic Church survived. God used war, you see, 
for the preservation of what is known as the house of God, in which house the word of God was preached and the gospel was sent forth and others were gathered and we could go on. So the purpose, beloved, must begin. The purpose, as the apostle says, though these are judgments according to the will of God, that's what you read in verse 19, you know, let them that suffer according to the will of God. This is according to the will of God. Yet, in the end, understand, however ever severe this may be, ultimately, going to serve the good of his church and of your own salvation and the spread of the gospel and the gathering of others who have been bought by the blood. So that, first of all, that purpose served by the judgments that God wills that we still suffer. But there's a, another benefit as well by these judgments that come, and persecution in particular, the purging of the church. Because as we said in the early New Testament church, there were many who joined out of some kind of enthusiasm, but they had not deepness of root in themselves. And if allowed to remain in time, the carnal element becomes dominant in, in the church of Christ and will rule all things. And persecution is used by God even to purge the church, to sort through those who are truly believers and those who make a confession, but they have not deepness of ruth and with trials and tests and a cost is required of them. Well, we didn't buy into Christianity for, for this. We're not going to suffer these things, be identified with these Christians if it means we have to suffer these things and they leave that church. They go elsewhere and there's a purging, you see, of the, of the church so that the spiritual remain in force and in number and from a certain point of view even in control and can be used then for the purifying, the purging of the, of the church as often has been done in the history of the world. But there is also this, the love. These great trials and tests also serve our Purifying, do they not? Teaching us what really should have priority. How easy it is for us in the time of abundance to lose sight of what ought to have priority. When there is so much to be gotten and all you have to do is put in a little more time and you can get more, then it can happen that in the midst of our busyness of getting and spending, well, our devotions and our religion is a matter of convenience. When we can work it in, Lord, you know, it's, it's planting season right now, and we're very busy, and we've got to get it in before the rains come or whatever. And when we have time, Lord, we'll find some time to get in our devotions and pray to Thee when it's convenient. And now it's harvest, and we've got to get the crops out now. So, Lord, when we find some time, we'll fit you in. We hope you understand. Really? God is pleased with that? when it's convenient for us to fit him in. Now we find time. When things go well, beloved, that's not just with a farmer. That can happen with any one of us. Things go well. Do we really need him? Do we need to really depend on him? We're making it quite well on our own. And then the Lord comes, and he whacks us with some kind of tragedy or with some kind of news of a disease of some brother that probably will mean death. 
and were brought up short. And now it's not a matter of convenience, Lord. I'm on my prayer on my knees now, praying for the grace that is needed. My whole life has been reprioritized. The Lord has done that, you see, in the way of testing, trying, and even of what we call these judgments that threaten death itself. Purifying, beloved, sanctifying with us in mind as we, in the midst of our abundance, so often need it. So the apostle speaks here of this judgment's beginning at the house of God with the eye of God upon his church, with the idea of the preservation of the gospel, not only but the spread of the gospel, and what comes first, teaching us what comes first as well. And it's in that light, beloved, that he says, if judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? What the apostle is saying here is, I understand full well the severity of the trials that you, my beloved brothers and sisters, may have to suffer in this life. Severe trials, costly, painful, and the Lord wills it and then permits it. And he says, if that's true, that he is willing even to deal with his own people in a severe way, whom he loves, what do you think the end is going to be of those who obey not the gospel and turn their backs on him? How do you think he's going to deal with them, Church of Christ? Love, love, love? Or in severity? In severity beyond words, if he's willing to deal with us in a severe way, so he has our good in mind, you think he's not going to deal severely with those who turn their back on the gospel? I tell you of a truth. You better understand, he will. Do you want to suffer here? And are you willing to suffer here for his sake? Or do you want to put it all aside? And there will be a suffering. But it will be a suffering far, from, far more severe than the suffering that is in this life. That's what he's getting at here. Now one may say, is that really necessary? Can't you just preach Christ crucified? Christ who suffers in our stead on our behalf? And ought we not simply look at how my Savior has loved me to that extent? And ought that not in itself simply be enough for gratitude and spur, stir me up? Spurring on to godly living? Of course it should. But there are times, beloved, when people of God need more than that. Ask elders who are dealing with someone who has wandered from the way and is living in some sin and won't leave that sin for whatever reason he gives. And yet may even say, well, I may be living that way, but I assure you I'm a believer and I'm still right with God. Oh, really? You have God's approval as you live in this sin, brother. We're not judging whether you're a believer or not at this point. But we, what, we will tell you what the requirement of God is for a Christian, how he is to live. And you are not walking on the straight and narrow. You are walking on the broad way that leads to destruction. 
repent or perish. That's the word we have to bring to you. Do you understand in what peril your soul is as you continue to live in this way? The apostle's getting at it. We, beloved, also need to hear these words. That's how he wakes us up unto the way of godliness and the importance of the life of godliness and living out of our faith, not only making a confession of a certain faith, but living out of our faith and being willing to be identified with Christ. Because he who disobeys the gospel in the end will not be identified with Christ. And if you will not be identified with Christ in this world, don't expect to be identified with Christ in the life that is to come. Because for you it will not be life. It will be death. Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? I can tell you, and you can tell yourself, and you know very well. That's what he is getting at. And so he is saying to the house of God and those who are in the church of Christ, be willing to be identified with Christ and be willing to count the cost and be assured your Lord and Savior knows how to preserve you and to keep you and in the end even use it to your spiritual profit and the strengthening of your faith and even perhaps for the benefit of others in the spread of the gospel as a witness to his name. Now, having said that, he goes on and he strengthens his argument. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Notice the reference here to the righteous. Speaks of the righteous scarcely being saved, and I'll just say here at the very beginning, by which he does not mean that God almost doesn't have the power to save those who will be counted as righteous and known as the righteous. He's not calling to question God's power. He has a different purpose in the word, the meaning of that word scarcely. We'll come to that. But he speaks here, first of all, of the righteous. And now he's speaking of the elect remnant that is in the house of God. Those who are indeed saved. They are the righteous. And he's not focusing now on justification. He's not speaking of... And if the justified scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? But he's speaking about the upright, who live in a righteous, upright manner. That's why he contrasts them with the ungodly and sinner. He doesn't contrast the righteous here with the unbelieving and condemned. That would be from a forensic point of view. But he contrasts the righteous with the ungodly and the sinner, those who are living in immoral and defiled ways. In contrast to them, you have the righteous. They are justified, certainly, but as the justified, they are living in an upright way. And don't you see, beloved, that's what calls attention to one as a Christian. They don't care if you claim to be justified, just as long as you don't live in a Christian way. Because if you do, oh, you think you're better than we are, huh? What makes you think you're so holy, huh? Oh, you're trying to condemn us for our views. Is that it? That you live right and we don't. See, it's living as an upright way that irritates them and angers them. It's what 
Christ has in mind when he says in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he's not talking there simply about the justified. He's talking about those who live in an upright way over against the scribes and Pharisees with their self-righteousness and they see how these followers of Christ live in an upright way and the very uprightness of the way and their godliness testifies against their hypocrisy and it angers them. And we don't want this witness around and not today either, you know, when you live in an upright way. Oh, so you're going to condemn us for divorce and remarriage, huh? You have to be faithful to marriage. Is that it? You're condemning us? And you're against abortion as well? You're calling us murderers? Is that it? And keeping the Lord's Day holy, what we're transgressing? And the list goes on. We don't want this witness in our midst. Silence this witness. Dismiss this witness. And when the focus of the evil one can come upon us as that which disturbs society has been removed, you know who's going to be labeled as the troublemakers who trouble our consciences and remind us of our sins and why these judgments are falling. We don't want that witness around. Silence these people, remove them, and now we can have peace once again. The righteous will live upright, scarcely saved. When he says scarcely, as I said, he does not mean that God almost doesn't have the power to save his own so that though he may will to save many, there are many in the end who are saved for a time and may fall away even from the true faith. He is speaking of those who are certainly saved. But the point is, even those who are certainly and surely saved are saved in what I may call a difficult way, a testing, trying, demanding, and costly way. And that's not only costly to the believer who will live uprightly, but we were even costly to God, the loved. What we cost God. First of all, living in a costly way if you live according to your faith. When you have to face temptation, we have all our weaknesses, beloved. All the sins that, fa- that trouble us and the temptations that face us. And how will we withstand? Left to ourselves, we will stumble and fall It is in a difficult, difficult way to withstand temptation, beloved, and to live as a Christian, is it not? It's the reason why we must be found often in prayer and seeking grace and grace and more grace. And then there's persecution. And one has to weigh the cost of the persecution, not only myself, but my family. Am I going to deny myself and confess Christ and then know what it's going to cost my family? Maybe I ought to just deny I'm a Christian and I can spare my family all this trouble and all this assault. I'll do them a favor. That's the temptation, isn't it? You think it was easy, beloved, for a man in prison, knowing tomorrow he's going to be brought to the stake and burned alive? Not to wonder, is the cost worth it? Shall I put my body and let it be burned at the stake? You don't think that took prayer? And the seeking of grace, scarcely saved. God knows how to save his own, but beloved in such, in such a difficult and often so costly way. Not only for us, 
God himself, what we cost him. You remember Christ's prayer in the garden, don't you? If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Does it have to be this way? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he headed for the cross. Beloved, he had to save the likes of Simon Peter, who denied his Lord with cursing and swearing, I know not the man, I will not be identified with him and suffer for his sake. And the only way, Peter says, I could possibly be saved is that God would sacrifice his own son in my stead. There's a reason, you know, why the devil was sure it would be beyond God to save these great sinners. There might be one who could come and crush his head, but certainly God would never have the right to give to these great sinners salvation and rescue them, not in his righteousness. Behold, I show you a mystery, beloved. The devil himself did not know the depths of God's love for his own, that he would part even with his own son to purchase our salvation and save us from damnation, as he experienced, from a certain point of view, damnation himself. God so loved, indeed scarcely saved at the greatest of costs. And now you imagine, you imagine a man can be saved outside of Christ? I'm going to deny my Christianity and escape persecution, but I'll live as a good man. I'll do as best I can. A lot of moral, upright, hospitable things and charity. And when I die, who knows? I may get to heaven yet. Thou fool. There's only one way, and on the basis of one work and in one name, that a man can be saved. And that's on the basis of the work of Christ and obeying the gospel and hearing its call and living by faith, out of faith, and unto Christ. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other salvation. If you would not be identified with Christ in this life, don't expect to be identified with him in the life to come. It's in Christ or not at all. Repent and believe and put the whole of your confidence and faith in him and then live unto him as you are called. That's what the apostle is getting at. And he underscores that, you see, in that last verse. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Wherefore, in light of what I have just said, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? It may appear in this life for a time that they triumph. They have the upper hand. Everything goes their way. But in the end, the apostle says, it's only an appearance because in the end, they are not going to triumph. They are going to be defeated as they have principally already been defeated by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And they will be forever lost and perish. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls as unto a faithful creator. Don't think, don't think for a moment, well, I'll just blend in. I will not be identified with Christ in any real Christian way and I'll fly under the radar and I'll escape this persecution. No, the apostle says, don't go that way. Identify yourself with Christ and be assured 
You will not deny your Lord. The grace will be there. Commit your soul to God as to a faithful creator. He could have said savior, but he says creator because he's drawing on God's power. This is the almighty. He said, let there be and there was. He has created your soul. You think he, you think he having created your soul, can't keep your soul? He who has created your soul can keep your soul. Commit your soul to the creator with all of his power. And do so in well-doing. Notice that. In well-doing. Don't put the well-doing aside. Continue to live as a Christian. And you may say, but I am so weak. And I may prove unfaithful. And he says, look to your God. He's faithful. This is Simon Peter, beloved. Simon Peter, who denied his Lord. And the Lord sought him out and found him and restored him. And Simon Peter is saying, if the Lord Christ can keep me and has kept me in spite of all of my weaknesses, he certainly has the power to keep you in spite of all your weakness, but your trust and confidence in his Father, the Almighty Creator, and you will know he will keep you faithful unto death and following death, beloved, the everlasting glory, not only for yourselves, but for those who are dear to you and me, our loved ones in the body of Christ, in life eternal. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the promises thou hast given, for the thy will to purchase that us at the greatest of costs and of price. May we contemplate that, Father, and be willing to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow him, to be identified with thy Son, whatever the cost, to know thou wilt keep us, for our strength is not, in our, own, is not our own, it is thy strength, and our confidence is thy faithfulness, which thou wilt see to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.